guys. Thank you, Mel, Josh, Bethany, Ron, thank you. Do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Numbers chapter 12. We're doing a series now, um, Lessons from the Desert Wilderness, going through the book of Numbers together. I'm going to actually read the passage today. It's a little bit shorter than some of the other ones, so I want to take advantage of that. I'll read the passage, and then we'll pray, and we'll get to work. This is Numbers chapter 12. Starting in verse 1, it reads like this. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them had stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. And he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, Please, God, heal her. The Lord replied to Moses, if her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she could be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until she was brought back. After that, the people left Hazaroth and encamped in the desert of Paran. Let's pray. Lord, here we are in your word marching our way through the book of Numbers. And I believe, Lord, that you, by your providence, bring this stuff in front of us on purpose. And so, Lord, we're asking that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak and you would help your people. And we would know more about your character and your goodness and your mercy and your judgment. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to examine our own hearts and to be willing to come under your corrective work. Because, Lord, we want to be your faithful people. We want to live in a way that's pleasing to you. So help us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we talked about trouble in the camp. The people were complaining about the difficulties of the desert wilderness. And then Moses uh, complained about the leadership assignment. And what we found was that the desert wilderness brings out sometimes the worst in us. We find out what's really going on at the heart level when we go through the wilderness. Well, in Numbers chapter 12, we might call it um, Trouble in the Camp Part 2. And this time, it doesn't take very long. I mean, we just got done with that episode, and you might think, okay, they're learning along the way, and it's not going to go so poorly now. But 
right away in Numbers chapter 12, we find Miriam and Aaron speaking against Moses. We find them critiquing the work of God in the midst of their community. And so there's trouble in the camp, part two, and this comes in the form of criticism. Now, when you're reading the Bible, one of the things that can help you understand what the emphasis is or what the point is, is to notice when there is a repetition. And so what I find here is that criticism is a communication problem. Over and over and over again in our short passage, it's talking about talking. It's dealing with the fact that, the, that Aaron and Miriam are miscommunicating. So watch it unfold here in verse 1. Aaron and Miriam begin to talk against Moses. So they're speaking, and that word shows up again and again. It's translated here in the NIV to talk, but in other versions, it's speaking. It's this idea that they are speaking against Moses. You keep moving on, and you find their complaint in verse 2. And what is it? Has the Lord spoken only through this one dude? Has he just spoken through Moses? Is Moses the only voice piece of the Lord? Hasn't he also spoken through us? Again, speaking, speaking, speaking. It's this idea that there is a communication thing that the word of God is highlighting here. And then it tells us in verse two, the Lord heard this. The Lord hears this communication. It goes on to tell us that in verse six, God is going to speak and he says, okay, now let me talk. And he says, listen up. Verse six, listen to my words. I've heard you, now listen to what I have to say. He then explains how he has spoken through prophets. He's given people visions and dreams and a communication that he has given to them that needs to be interpreted, but he has spoken through them. But then he says, that's not how I communicate with Moses. With Moses, I speak clearly. Look at verse eight. With him, I speak face to face clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, Moses? Here's the issue. We have a, a heart condition that results in us miscommunicating. We have something going on on the interior that spills out into different things like criticism or complaining. And so as we look at this passage, we are recognizing that God is going to deal with our communication patterns. And one of the things we just have to get honest with is, how are we doing with communicating right now? We're going through, obviously, a very hard season in the life of the world. So what is it that we do with our mouths or with our keyboards? What is it that we're doing when we communicate? And I guess I would ask it like this. What if I were to do an audit of your communication? What if I were to examine how you post online and the conversations that you have offline, would I come away with a sense of the grace of God in the way that you speak? Or would I find an awful lot of complaint and criticism? You see, Aaron and Miriam were critiquing Moses. They were miscommunicating something there. So we need to be honest enough to say, how am I doing at communicating right now? Am I speaking in a way that honors God? Or am I just grumbling? There's an awful lot of grumbling right now. I understand there are lots of reasons to do that. I agree with a lot of the critiques, but I want to make sure that we as Christians are doing things differently. That if someone were to observe our church family and they say, how is it that they're dealing with this cultural moment? They would find us communicating in a way that's different from the world. Well, criticism, I would say, is the presenting issue. What we really need to understand is why it happens. What is behind the criticism? What's going on 
under the surface. So, you know, it's like that's the symptom. What's the, what's the root cause? The symptom is when we complain, we grumble, we criticize other people, but what's really standing behind it? Because if we can get to that, then I think we're in a good position to diagnose and allow the Lord to work on us. So let's look at it here in our passage. Verses one and two, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. So we have three different issues that are really coming to the surface here. We've got the issue of racism, we've got the issue of legalism, and we've got the issue of egotism. We've got these three different things that are really motivating their complaints. The first one is racism. Why is it that Moses married a Cushite woman? And they're looking at this issue of she's not one of us. The issue of racism goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 11. It's the reality that we have different people groups and different cultures and instead of honoring and respecting those differences, we resent and critique, and there's a disparity between the, the people groups. And so racism is in clear view here. They're saying, why is it that Moses married a Cushite woman? Now, that's the first issue, and I would say that is a gospel issue. The church needs to be involved in issues of racial inequality and racial reconciliation, and we need to understand that God cares deeply about people groups. He cares deeply about people from different cultures. So much so, in fact, that if you read the very end of the Bible, what do you find? John sees a vision of the throne and the lamb that's slain, but he's also a lion, and he sees everyone worshiping. And what is he, how does he describe it? He says, what I saw was that there were people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation worshiping the lamb who was slain. In other words, he can see that there's a difference there. He can observe that, that not everyone just came together and became identical. He's able to recognize in the throne room before the Lamb of God himself for all of eternity, people have their cultural uniqueness and that's validated then. And so the church needs to recognize that racism is an important issue for us to be concerned with. But a second thing emerges here and it's the issue of legalism. Legalism is when we take the word of God and we think there is a way to apply this thing and I've found it and now everyone else needs to get on board with it. I believe that God has spoken to me and, and you know, everyone else ought to be following in the same exact way that I feel. In fact, their concern, um, and it's not as, as obvious as some of the other things that I'm bringing up, but, I, but Ian DeGood in his commentary points this out and I think he gets it right that their concern was that Moses was not following God's intentions, that Moses wasn't listening to the voice of God, that he wasn't following the leadership of God in this case. And they were bringing up this issue of his marriage. And I don't know much about the marriage because uh, it doesn't give us many details. He was married. We know this. He was married to a woman named Zipporah. And so this could be describing her. Maybe she was a Cushite or maybe Zipporah had passed away and he had been remarried now. Or maybe even he took on a second wife. But, but what they're getting at is Moses is violating what God wants him to do. And their concern then is that he is not following the way of the word. Now, here's what Ian says in his commentary. He says, we can easily confuse our personal interpretations of God's law with the law itself. So that we look down on anyone who seeks to obey God's law in any way other than the way we deem correct. That's legalism in a nutshell. It's when you have the Bible and anyone who's not doing things the same way that you would do it, you begin to condemn. There's a self-righteousness in you and a condemnation of other people. 
And he goes on to say it like this, true love for God's law never leads to pride. I'll tease that out in just a minute, but it's worth our consideration. When you are dealing with the, the law of God, it actually should have a humbling effect on you so that you're not growing in self-righteousness and pride. You're being humbled more and more like Moses does here. So legalism is another reason for their critique. Here's the third one though. It's egotism. It's making everything about me. Look at verse two. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? They asked, hasn't he also spoken through us? I'm at the center of the universe. Now, when, when you got egotism at play, what you're saying is everything, I'm the gravitational pull. Everything ought to work for me. I've got things that I want. I've got things the, the world should be working in my favor. And when that is the case, you are very easily offended because what you'll find is that not everyone is on board with that plan. Not everyone thinks that you're the center of the universe. And so we become easily offendable. So criticism is the presenting issue, but what I'm concerned with is what's going on in the heart. And what we find here are all kinds of issues of sin. So how do we cure criticism? How do, how do our hearts get the help that they would need? And I think we're told here that the way in which we could be cured from criticism and from our sin issue is that we need to hear the voice of God. In fact, in verse six, it says, he, the Lord said, listen to my words. That's the turning point. God begins to speak and the whole tone of the passage changes. It changes from Aaron and Miriam making these complaints to them being humbled and asking for mercy and grace. So when God speaks and we hear him rightly, that changes us. It changes us at the deepest level. Raymond Brown puts it like this. They had talked insensitively about the Lord's voice. Now that they heard that divine voice, they were terrified. That's what happens when you listen to God in his word. It changes you. It humbles you. It does an incredible work on you. Now we're given this little, I think, uh, parenthetical teaching on the priority of God's word and, and its clarity. And so I just want to show this to you briefly. We'll get back to the task at hand. But here, when God speaks, he reveals that the word has a clarity about it, but there are different ways in which God communicates. And so in the first case, God communicates through people, through us. Hasn't the Lord spoken through us? God uses regular people and we can have conversations and you can talk to other believers and you can actually hear something of God. And in fact, that would be an ambition of mine for our church, that we become very fluent in speaking on God's behalf. So when we sit down for coffee or when you're having a meal at home and you're just having discussions, God is communicating through you. That is a level of communication that God is committed to. He uses ordinary people like us in ordinary conversations, revealing something of his will. But that's just tier one. There are additional ways that he speaks that have greater clarity, greater authority even. He tells us about the prophets. He speaks to the prophets in visions and dreams, and he gives them a word, but that word is obscure, and so that has to be interpreted. So you've got us, and then you've got a second level of the prophets, and then he says, but then there's an additional level, and that's Moses. With Moses, I speak face to face, not in riddles. I speak to him clearly. I speak to him clearly. And so you've got this additional reality. Now, Moses is the one that God was communicating to, and he wrote a huge portion of the Old Testament itself. And so when we think about this, God speaks to Moses, and Moses 
took that all down, and now we have it in the Bible. But even beyond that, there's another level of God communicating, and it's when he talks. Obviously, he talks through his word, but he also commits himself to revealing himself to his people. So in this case, he says, listen to my words. In Hebrews chapter one, it reminds us that God in the past has spoken through prophets in various places and various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken through his son. That is the greatest form of revelation that we have, Jesus Christ, the word of God. So when we think about listening to God, obviously we want to listen to other Christians and we want to listen to, uh, you know, people's visions and dreams of what God might be up to, but we certainly want to listen to the word itself, to God speaking through the Bible, and we want to listen to the Son of God himself, the clearest revelation of who God is and what he's up to. So we need to be a Bible people. If we want to cure our critical hearts, we need to be people who are in the word, interacting with the Lord himself. Now, when that happens, here's what, here's what will come. You will become a humble individual. Isn't it weird that in verse three, it tells us something about Moses and it's actually a very surprising claim. Verse three, now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. That's a crazy saying. And in fact, it's kind of absurd because Moses wrote this. So he's having to tuck this little idea in here. Hey guys, by the way, uh, I was humble, more humble than anyone else, which is a weird thing for him to do. But, but here's what happened. God spoke to him. And so he was a changed individual. God revealed his law to him. And so that didn't puff Moses up. It actually humbled him to dust. Let me, let me give you a case study. This is Deuteronomy chapter 17. Moses in another place telling the people, hey, listen, when you go into the land and you get a king, here's the job of the king. So in Deuteronomy 17, he's talking about this, the, the future king, the future leader of the people of God. Here's what the king is supposed to do. The king is supposed to take the law of God and transcribe it in his own writing. He's supposed to handwrite the Bible. And then he's got his own personal copy, and that copy he's supposed to interact with routinely. I'll show it to you here, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17, verses 19 and 20. It, the copy of the law is to be with him. He's to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord, his God, and follow carefully all the words of the law and these decrees. Okay? This is what the king is supposed to do. He's got the Bible. He's handwritten it. He's got his own personal copy. He keeps it with him. He reads it daily. And here's why. So that he would revere God and follow the leadership of God as revealed in the word. But here's the next phrase. And this one is surprising. This is what it goes on to say in verse 20. And not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. If the king is reading the Bible, do you know what happens to the king? He's humbled. He's humbled. He will not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. He will be humbled because he will come under the leadership of the Lord. When we read the Bible, if we're doing it right, we're growing in humility. If we're growing in pride and self-righteousness, we're not actually understanding what God is doing. So the way to cure our criticism, and more importantly, the way to deal with our sin issue is through exposure to God's word that is humbling us. Well, let's get now to this reality of the gospel that's here. We need to understand, okay, how does God work? And this story gives us an, a little understanding of the gospel, as I said last week, and probably will say repeatedly, the good news of the gospel is salvation through judgment and mercy. 
The good news of the gospel is God's salvation through judgment and mercy. That's how God works. He, he looks at sin and he judges it because he's holy and righteous. He does not say, yeah, guys, it's no big deal. This passage reminds us that sin is tragic and God is just in condemning it. And so judgment comes first. So the anger of the Lord burned against them. This is verse nine. And he left them. This is the judgment of God. One, one way in which it manifests is his supposed absence. Obviously, God is everywhere. And even when you're far from him, he, he is near to you because you can cry out to him and he will receive you gladly. But there is a sense in which when you sin, the Lord departs and leaves. Verse 9. Now, I heard this story and I, I couldn't remember this week where it came from, but it's not mine. So I'm trying to give it away. I just don't know who, who to give it to. But there was somebody who did ministry in a college setting and students would come to them and would say, I feel like God is far away. I, there's a dryness in my relationship with him and I, I don't know what's wrong, but I'm coming to you because I'm looking for help. And um, many of us can relate to that. We've been through dry spells or seasons where it feels like God is absent. And this individual, ha having worked in the college setting for a long, long time, began to say to people, it was a very abrupt thing that, that he would do, but he would say when somebody would come to him, hey, I feel like God is far away and, and you know, absent. And I, you know, how's your time with the Lord, well, it's pretty non-existent. It doesn't really happen. If I try to, it feels like he's not there. And this individual would begin to say to people, who are you sleeping with? And the story, as I remember it, oftentimes a secret sin would be revealed in that moment. There was a, something that was actually going on that didn't want to be brought out into the light, but this individual had the pastoral sensitivity to say, look, maybe there's something else here. And so when I heard that story, I was in youth ministry and I was like, I'll give it a try. Um, what do I have to lose? And so I'm with students and I, this week I was thinking about it. I can think of four different times where I did this. I was not as rude. I did not just say, who are you sleeping with? I asked a bunch of questions to try to reveal what was going on behind the issue. And I would say in my faulty memory, three out of the four times there was a hidden sin. There was something that was going on with an individual that revealed a brokenness in their relationship with God. Now, God here is reminding us that sin is not something to be trifled with. It's not something where he goes, look, we all struggle with criticism. No big deal, guys. Like, I understand it's your brother. Like, who doesn't have issues with siblings? Like, Aaron and Miriam are siblings to Moses, and, you know, God could have said, look, this isn't that big of a deal. I understand you're frustrated. I, I understand that you think... You know, he shouldn't have married that woman. And, and I validate all of that. It's no big deal. No, God hears them. And the text tells us in his judgment, he's angry. Sin is nothing to be trifled with. There's a seriousness of sin. And what happens then with this judgment is it brings about repentance. Because of the interaction with God, they come to recognize what we have done is foolish. That's a grace. When, when, when God by his spirit reveals to you What's really going on at the heart level is not okay. That's a grace. That means that you're now in the realm of his saving work. 
Verse 11, this is Aaron speaking, and he said to Moses, please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us this sin that we have so foolishly committed. He's not saying, God, you know, Moses, please pray to God because we've, we just made a little mistake here. You know, we just miscalculated and critiqued you and that's, you know, that's on us. No, he's saying, look, what we did was foolish. This was sin. This is a sin that we foolishly committed. So again, it's this idea of the judgment of God, which leads to the grace of God, the repentance and the restoration. But one more thing before we get to the mercy, there is an effect on other people. Verses 14 and 15, when you sin, you do not get to do it in isolation. It affects everybody. Here's what happens. Verses 14 and 15, confine Miriam outside the camp for seven days because what has happened has resulted in God's judgment and now she is unclean. And so here's what needs to happen. She needs to be removed from the community of faith for a period of time as is revealed in the law. And then after she's cleaned, she can be restored. She can be brought back, but we have to stay put for a season. Bring her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days and the people did not move on until she was brought back. It's a reminder that your sin, you don't get to sin in isolation. When we sin, it affects other people around us. There are consequences and the community shares in those as well. And I, I've seen this over and over in the Bible and in personal experience, sin affects other people. So that all reminds us that when God looks at us and when we're critical of other people and maybe God's revealing some stuff in us today. He's bringing the sin before us and he's reminding us this is no small thing that we're talking about. This is the issue. This is the fundamental human condition for which Jesus had to come and die. But that leads us to mercy. And we find a glimpse of it here in our passage in verse 13. So Moses cried out to the Lord, please God heal her. And God does. He restores her. He heals her. He, he brings her back into that condition of health and cleanness and restoration in the community of faith. But Moses then is an intercessor and he's offering the mercy of God to her. It reminds us of the way that God works. There is a, a salvation that God offers us, but it is through his judgment and his mercy. It involves the judgment. It, it, good news involves bad news. And if somebody's trying to preach the gospel to you and they're unwilling to talk about sin, that is not good news. That's wishful thinking. That might be a motivational talk. It might have an awful lot of Bible in it, but the Bible tells us that the real good news involves the judgment of God and his mercy. And so we recognize that sin is the problem for which Jesus had to die. And we recognize that Moses here is acting an awful lot like Jesus, that he is offering forgiveness to Miriam. It's crazy because He's the offended party. He's the one against whom Aaron and Miriam had sinned and spoken poorly of him. But then he acts as the mediator between them and God. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. Romans 5, 8 puts it like this. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is the work of Jesus Christ? He is taking the wrath of God due to us for our sin. And he is offering the incredible mercy of God to the undeserving. It's exactly the kind of prayer that the Lord himself offered at Calvary. In Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, looking at his 
condemners, looking at those that have nailed him there, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Today, as we look at this story and we recognize trouble in the camp and we acknowledge our own critical spirits and the things that those critiques point to, the realities of our own sinfulness, the the thought that we're at the very center of the universe and we're so easily offended when things don't go our way, when all that stuff kind of comes to the surface, here's what God is reminding us of. He's telling us, sin is a big deal, but I have made a way for you to be restored. You can be healed today by faith in Jesus Christ. You can be restored. You can be set free. You can be liberated from the bondage to sin in which you're presently experienced. Jesus himself is saying, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Lord, I'm extending my mercy and grace to the undeserving. So receive that gladly and worship him. Let's pray right now, if you would, and the band will come and lead us in one more song. But if you would, please stand with me. And um, we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to continue to search our hearts and our minds. And we're going to trust that the gospel is at work in this group right, right here. I'm positive that the Holy Spirit is moving in this place. And I'm also positive that the Holy Spirit is doing a con- convicting work. And if you need to do some business with the Lord, I'll, here's what I'll do. Do you mind doing the benediction? I'll go ahead and I'll just head b- back into that area over there. And if you want to pray, I'm just going to make myself available. And if you feel like, man, I am so critical right now, and I'm realizing that that's just unearthing what's going on at the heart level, and I need that mercy and that grace, I'll pray with you. I'll, I'll come alongside you and help you in that decision. But let's go ahead and pray right now. Lord, I ask for the work of the gospel to be on display in this moment. You are a savior God. You do not wink at sin. You judge it at Calvary, and you extend mercy and grace to the undeserving. Help each and every one of us who are here in the wedding garden and watching online, help each and every one of us to trust in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and receive that mercy and that forgiveness and that grace. Do that restorative work in our hearts, Lord. We want to be changed. We want to be humble people who are following your leadership. Help us to do that, please, in your name. Amen.